Well, we've been traveling through Isaiah long enough now that I think you know that Isaiah wants us to know that God has a plan and that things are in his control. That he intends to redeem a people for himself. That he intends to redeem them even though they are sinners. And that he intends to come and judge the world. And that all of his enemies will be crushed under his feet. Isaiah has told us that in numerous ways, in numerous chapters. But I wonder, do you ever have in the back of your mind, maybe you don't confess it, maybe you do confess it, but do you ever have in the back of your mind that nagging doubt? Will he really do this? Is he really in charge of this mess in our world? Are we, just, are we just holding on to a wives' tale that makes us feel good? I want you to place yourself in the position of those returning from Babylonian captivity, hearing Isaiah's words in chapter 60 and 61 and 62 of this promise that God intends to gather his people and bring them into a new Jerusalem, a, a holy city, and bring holy people into that holy city. And that he promises to send his son, the one who Jesus reads out of uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 61 and tells us exactly that in his day, those scriptures are fulfilled. And then reminding us again in chapter 62 that this is what God intends to do. Imagine being those people coming out of Babylonian captivity and you're looking around and you see opposition to building the wall. You see opposition to rebuilding the temple. The temple is small and all the older people are, are moaning and, and grieving over the fact that the temple is not like the old temple. Do you think they might have had doubts? I think they could have. I think they could have wondered, is this where the promises are fulfilled? Now, of course, they should have not felt that the promises were fulfilled yet, that they were being fulfilled. But we know that Jesus has come. He has come to redeem a people for himself and to do the work that Isaiah has talked about in the servant songs, to do the work of the suffering servant, to die a substitutionary death for his people so that God's wrath is placed on him instead of the sinner and, God, and, and God's favor is turned toward those people. Not just left alone to sin again, but his favor is turned toward his people so that their sin is forgiven because he died in our place. Now we can know that here and not know it here all the time. We can go through times in our life where we, we know it's true, but we have a hard time believing it. So we may not doubt its reality, but we're not believing it. We're not living by it. We're not, it's not changing our lives to know Christ has come. He's come again, and he will gather his people in the new Jerusalem forever to worship him face to face. Well, in chapter 63, that's what Isaiah wants us to understand. That's what God wants us to understand. That we can trust these promises because it is his will to do it. It is his will to do it. We have seen throughout Isaiah many times where the salvation of God's people and the judgment of the wicked are in one sentence, in one section. That we're told that when, when this time comes fully and finally, that both actions will happen. God will save his people and he will destroy his enemies. And they're often intertwined so much that we see the vengeance of God accomplishing both. 
Now, when we get to Isaiah chapter 63, we enter into the last subsection in Isaiah. We come out of Isaiah 60, 61, and 62, where all of these glorious promises have been given to us. And actually, we started back in chapter 59, and before that, even chapter 56. So we're not going to go through all of this, but turn to Isaiah 56. Just let your eyes fall on the words and the, the headings in your Bible. If you have the ESV in front of you, the heading, now remember, these headings are not inspired, right? These headings are the editors putting in summary statements to break up the text. But your heading says, Salvation for Foreigners. So in chapter 56, this is what we see. And from 56 all the way through to 62, we see um, salvation, or in, actually into 59, we see salvation for foreigners and God doing what he promises to do. And then 60, 61, and 62, we see the perfection of everything he's going to do. And we, I want you to see that in chapter 56, we have salvation for foreigners. And then in 57, God is still dealing with those who are idolaters and still dealing with those who are repentant before him, both strings going together. Then in chapter 58, he addresses the worship of those people. And he says, I know that your hearts are not turned toward me because you're, you're worshiping for your own glory. You're worshiping to manipulate me. And he tells them what a true fast would look like. And then in chapter 59, after this whole section talking about what evil is still in the land, look at the middle of verse 15 of chapter 59. Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was not justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to, the, to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall... Fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of Yahweh drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, declares Yahweh. And as for me, it is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of your, the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says Yahweh, from this time forth forevermore. So we have moving from the salvation of the foreigners all the way through to the promise of judgment and salvation, ending that section in 59. Then in 60, 61, and 62, we have the ultimate promise where everything is fulfilled and everything will happen in the new heavens and new earth and what that will look like. And we're given all of that hope to look forward to that. And then we move to the final section in chapter 63. And it starts where chapter 59 left off. We see everything in a reverse order. We see moving from salvation of foreigners to the promise of God to both judge and save. Here in 63, we start with the promise of God to both judge and save and end up in chapter 66 with foreigners being included in the new heaven and new earth. 
So we're completely, uh, we call that a chiastic structure. Remember the X where we start here and go to the middle and come back out? The, the ends of those match and the middle of those match. So we see it in reverse order. But 59, I read those verses again for us so we could see how they connect with 63. We're not seeing anything new here, but we are seeing things in a much more stark and bright vision, are we not? Now, if you're going through the dig and discover principles, and we have several growth groups doing this, that, that's those hermeneutical principles that um, Word Partners uses, the organization we support to train pastors all over the world. We're implementing them in our church. We're doing it in several growth groups now. We're going to do it as a church when Luke finishes in May with his teaching. We'll take a couple of months and teach it to the whole um, church on, during our Sunday school. But if you've looked at those and you've been using those, you're going to recognize a couple of things that we've been studying. One thing that's important in our hermeneutical approach to Scripture, and hermeneutics just means this, the art and science of biblical interpretation. It is an art and it is a science. And so we have guidelines to help us do this well. And one of those principles in the Dig and Discover is genre. That we have different genres of literature, different types of literatures available in the Bible. Now, Luke has already read for you chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. That's our sermon text this morning. He's already read those for you. I'm not going to read them again except in pieces as we go through it. But you, you get this vivid picture that is brought to us about Jesus who comes to destroy his enemies. And it's a picture that is used throughout the scripture to talk about this day. And it's summed up in Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 19 as well with the same imagery. Now, Isaiah could have just said, as we start chapter 63, remember, Jesus is coming again to judge his enemies and save his people. Could have just said it that way, couldn't he have? Just in narrative. He could have just told us because it's not a new thought for us. But he chose to do it in poetry and prophecy with a little hint of apocalyptic literature all in here, didn't he? And isn't it more, doesn't it grab us more? When we talk about this one that's coming with blood-soaked clothes as if, as if he'd been in a wine press, this captures our image, our, our mind. It captures our hearts. It makes us sit up and listen in a different way because Isaiah chose this on purpose to convey these truths. But you're also going to see the, the idea of good questions demonstrated right in our text. You heard it when Luke read it, but I want you to look at Isaiah 63. Look at verse one, who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? So if you're studying in through the Dig and Discover principles, we have two kinds of good questions, don't we? That first, the first kind of good questions we call basic questions, and that's what this is. A who, what, where, those kinds of questions. It's, they're important, they're good questions for us to ask of the text, and our our text gives that to us right in the text, doesn't it? Who? It's a basic question, but it's one we need to ask. But look at verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like those who treads in the wine press? Now we move from what we call a basic question to what we call a what? A powerful question. The whys, 
the hows. When we're reading scripture, we want to ask these powerful questions as well. We can objectively see what the text says, but we need to know how and why these things are important. That, that makes us dig even deeper into the text, and the author does it for us. And so our sermon outline is driven by these two questions today. These two questions are brought to us in a way to describe this like nothing else could do for us. So in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, we observe two questions and answers describing the final coming of the Messiah as the divine warrior. Two questions and answers describing the final coming of the Messiah as the divine warrior. Now, I've given a lot of background today. We're going to give a little bit more because we need to see where we're heading. But I want you to know that this text is for us today. This text is for us, and it's going to challenge a couple of things. First, it's going to challenge, do we trust God as he's revealed himself in his word? Do we trust that? And I mean trust it where it affects your life every day. Because it is so tempting for us today in this world to get caught up in what's going on in the world. And listen, I can lead the parade for this, okay? This isn't a just you. This isn't us. I can get caught up in what goes into this world and what's going on. And it can just make me sad. It can make me question. It can make me angry. The injustice that goes on, that everything that is against God is, is brought up as good and everything that's for God is, is squashed as bad. Now that can overwhelm us where we're sorrowful and crushed in spirit, and overcome, and we don't want to leave our houses. But that wouldn't be believing God and his word, would it? It would not be believing that God says, I will do this. It is, it is in my will, and my will cannot be thwarted. I sit in the heavens, and I do as I please, and so I will take vengeance. And if we believe that, it should affect the way we live. And we'll talk about two ways that that should affect us in just a minute. But it should also remind us that we have work to do because this day has not come yet. This day of final vengeance has not come yet. This day where the Lord Jesus returns to, um, to bring his people to himself and to do, utterly destroy all of his enemies, those who have kept themselves away from the offer of the gospel, that day has not yet come. So we, as his people, have work to do. We have a life to live that shines his glory, not put our light under a bushel. And we have a gospel preached so that God, when he chooses through the power of his spirit, draws his people from the lost and dying world into the kingdom of light. And it's too easy for us to not believe the word of God, that God is going to do this. So the first question this morning as we jump into our text, who is this who comes and then it's fleshed out with two categories, comes from Eden and comes in beauty and power. Look at verse 1. Who is this com who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? Let's just look at Edom and Basra and remind ourselves, there's, I doubt there's anything in here that we haven't already learned in Isaiah. So if Isaiah is repeating it, guess what he knows about us? We can forget it and we need reminded. So Edom, it's a place, right, to the south of Jerusalem. But in Isaiah, what does Edom represent? Edom represents the enemies of God. Edom represents not only the enemies of God, but the enemies of God in their arrogance. Both of those ideas, enemies of God refusing to bow their knee and arrogant, are represented in Isaiah by Edom. Basra is the capital of Edom in Isaiah's day. 
Basra actually is very much known for its winemaking and the vineyards that it has and the quality of vintage of wine that it puts out. Even in Roman times, coins that were minted in Basra had a wine press on the back side of it because that's what they were known for. So Edom also fits the imagery of what Isaiah brings to us today, doesn't it? So Edom, we're, going to, we're just going to look at one place. We could look at several, but I want you to turn, if you will, to Isaiah 34. Keep your finger in 63 and turn to chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 34, look at verse 5. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Yahweh has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur, and land shall become burning pitch. And it goes on with this description of destruction. We have seen this before. We see this also brought in places like Ezekiel 35, which I don't want you to turn to. But in Ezekiel 35, 5, we have the reason Edom is addressed by God in this way. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. So Edom is this country that starts out as friends with Israel and then progressively gets worse of an enemy and they are the, the arch, arch type of archetype of enemies of Israel. And the same is the, for us here in Isaiah. But it also, you hear the arrogance that we just read about in chapter 34. So this is the perfect way to describe this final judgment in whoever this person is coming in these garments, coming after he has carried out his mission of crushing his enemies. So this happens in the final judgment. And we'll look in a minute and I'll prove why, but Revelation 14 and Revelation 19 uses these images as well as other passages always to talk about, not about grapes and, and juice and wine presses, but about the, the sovereign, holy judgment of God being meted out on the earth. And we'll finish up later with that proof from Revelation 14 and Revelation 19. But I want you to know right up front, in case this is confusing, in case you're thinking about the country of Edom, in case you're thinking about grapes and wine presses, this is about the coming day of the Lord when he fully and finally judges his enemies and saves his people. Now, some of the passages we've looked at have been heavy on salvation and just mentioning judgment, right? But others, including this one as, as the most so, it majors on judgment and includes salvation. In order for God to save his people, he has to crush his enemies. That's his promise to do so. And you and I should be happy about that. Think about this. 
all the evil that goes on in the world today will be dealt with by God and it will be done righteously. You and I led us at it to deal with it. We're going to do it unrighteously. We're going to do it out of an anger that does not produce the righteousness of God. But God said he will deal with this. And this is the day we come to recognizing, just as the scripture we read in our worship service said, one of the passages that we quoted together, that when he comes in judgment, the people, God's people, do what? Rejoice! Because he also comes to save us. We see that right in this text as well. So who is this one who comes from Edom? in crimson garments, and then a further description, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Now this is great imagery here. From a distance, now, now this is the picture of the watchman on the wall, right? That we have had throughout Isaiah. Remember, we have the watchman on the wall just from last week, that, that they shall never be silent. They, they are always giving remembrance of Yahweh, right? The watchman on the wall, yes, they're protecting from evil using that, using that imagery. They're waiting to see when people come outside the wall and judging whether they are friend or foe, but they're also always to be pleading with God to work out his will and his way. Here we have an example of them sitting on the wall and waiting for someone, and they see someone coming in the distance. And what they see is a very vivid garment. The ESV says crimsoned, and that's fine, but the word also has this idea of very vivid. Um, uh, when they look at that, they see a vivid garment. It's very clear to them. They, don't, they may see it as crimson, but they don't know why. They don't know anything about it yet. So what they're saying is, who is this that comes in crimsoned garments from Basra, the capital, the heart of where evil is, but also who is splendid in his apparel, this is rich, royal, majestic. This is kingly garments. Okay, so this is kingly, a kingly personage coming to them in very bright, probably crimson from a distance even garments. But it also says, marching in the greatness of his strength. Marching in the greatness of his strength. Now, this is a swagger. This is power, and he, as he is walking, as he is marching, it is clear that this is a powerful person, a powerful being. You just picture the pictures that you have in your mind when we've talked over and over in Isaiah about advancing armies, and the power and the strength that they had in them, and how they would march, and the combined step that they had in thundering through the valleys. Now imagine that this is God himself, with all the power, all the strength and all the glory on full display as he marches in victory because his work is finished. So this is one who comes from Eden in beauty and in power. We have the picture of a warrior returning from battle, but also a king, a majestic king, a royal warrior that has done his work. Now, if you're the watchman on the wall, what are you doing now? You're wondering, is this person coming for us? Or against us? Is this person coming to harm us or do us good? Is, is this person have those happy feet of one who brings good news, as we've already seen in Isaiah? Or is this person about to overcome us as well? Well, the person marching gives an answer, doesn't he? Who is this who comes? The answer, it is I. It is I. 
the Messiah and divine warrior. That's taking all of those first three or four lines in verse 1 and summing them up in what he's representing himself to be with his dress and his walk. And he says right in the, in the next to the last two lines of verse 1, it is I. Now remember, this is that self-declaration of Yahweh himself. Now you say, is this the Messiah or is this Yahweh? Yes. All through Isaiah, Yahweh has been the Father and the Son, right? All the way back to Isaiah 6, we said that that, that, that one who was seated on the throne and his glory filling the temple was the incarnate Christ, that he is Jesus himself. So this is God the Father and God the Son, all with the work of God through the Son who does the work. But this is God coming. It is I. Now, we've seen this in several times. Keep your finger in Isaiah 63. I just want to remind you of where we've seen this kind of language before. Turn to Isaiah 43, verse 11. Isaiah 43, verse 11. We're not going to go back and look at every reference for all of these repeated thoughts. But this is required for us to see and prove from the scripture, from Isaiah himself, who is advancing here. Verse 11, I, I am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And, if, and you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Now look over at verse 25 of that same chapter. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. And he goes on to, de to develop that idea that this is God speaking. And also, I want you to look at one more place before we go back to Isaiah 63. Look at chapter 51, verse 12. Isaiah 51, verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten Yahweh your maker? And going on to say the glories of who he is. I, I am he. That's the same grammatical force that we have back in chapter 63, verse, verse at the end of verse 1. It is I, I. And what does he come doing? Speaking. When we meet God in the scriptures, he comes speaking, whether it's in creation. We've covered this point several times already because God comes to his people speaking. He's not a mute God like the idols are. He comes to his people speaking in words to his people. And he comes here speaking. He comes addressing his people. It is I speaking how? In righteousness. Now this marks him out as the God of Isaiah, doesn't it? All the way through Isaiah, he's identified himself as the righteous one. He's identified his enemies as unrighteous. He's identified his people who he intends to redeem as righteous because he is righteous. So he comes speaking in righteousness. Now that, for one thing, is comforting if we're the watchman on the wall giving remembrance, aren't we? He doesn't say, it is I coming to kill. It is I coming to judge. It is I coming to destroy. We'll see that that work has already been done. So he identifies himself. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. 
Now, so far, we've been looking at this one who's covered in blood, and now, in the next question, we're going to find that he's close enough to say, oh, wait a minute, that's just not bright clothing. That's not just red. That, that looks like it's stained in blood. That's what they're going to bring. But here, what are his words? Coming mighty to save. So we know now, this is friend. It's not foe. It's a powerful one. And he comes as one who has done something other than saving, but he comes to us mighty to save. So right at the beginning of this, we, our hearts are set at ease if we are the followers of God, if we are the followers of Christ. We are set at ease because he is the one who is mighty to save. We're going to learn that he's also mighty to judge, and he has done it in this picture, and he will do it. But he comes mighty to save. Now, doesn't that just shock us and surprise us? If you're the watchman on the wall, you're going, that's good. This is not a bad thing. If we sound an alarm too quick, we can turn around and soften that alarm now because here comes one mighty and powerful, a redeeming, righteous king who's coming upon us. And so we are reserved now. We, we're, we're not worried yet about the judgment. So who is this who comes? It is I, the Messiah, the divine warrior, speaking in righteousness and mighty to save. But look at the second question, the powerful question, that our watchmen ask for us. And if this wasn't there, this question wasn't there, we should be asking this, right? If, this, if verse 2 wasn't there, and then we have the description of verse 3, and the description at the end of, in, in verse 1, talking about his garments, we should be asking, why are you coming? And why does your garment look like that? But our author does it for us. Look at verse 2. Why is your apparel red? Now remember... This, all the symbolism hangs together because Edom are the people who are the descendants of whom? Esau. And what does Esau mean? Red. So all our imagery hangs together here. Edom, red, known for its wine production, known in the scriptures by being, uh, being the, ar the, the, the arch enemy of God, and so this is bringing us all of the enemies of God and our, and our image is starting to advance now. It advances where it makes us uncomfortable. It advances where it makes us squeamish a little bit. But we cannot soften the word of God. This is intended to make us feel a little bit squeamish. This is intended to make us fearful it is intended to make us understand the overwhelming righteousness of God being demonstrated on the day of judgment. Why is your apparel red? So it moves their vision as he gets closer from this splendid apparel, crimsoned or very, very bright and, and noticeable, to red. And your garments like his who treads in the winepress. Now remember, we're full of parallelism in the poetry that is used. So we go from the, the, the reality, red garments, to a description that heightens our understanding, garments like his who treads in the winepress. Now, throughout scripture, when we see this idea of winepress, it more often has to do with God's judgment than a physical winepress. Unfortunately, we are people who know I love Lucy better than our Bibles. You remember that episode that was so famous where they're, they're in Italy and they're actually in a little vat and stomping the grapes and that's their wine press? 
We think of that as comedy, but when it comes up in the scriptures, if it's not clearly a literal representation of a wine press, we're talking about the judgment of God on his enemies. And it is a vicious picture. It is one of total and complete destruction. Now, as we get into this, I, I need just to warn you. Listen to me. If you're here this morning and not trusting in Christ, this is the picture that you are facing. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in your own righteousness, this is what you face. You face total destruction because of your being enemy with God. And that total destruction will last for eternity. It will never stop. It's not that you're just destroyed and say, I'm glad that's over. It goes on forever and ever and ever. So this description is meant to grab us by the throats and have us listen. What is, what is his answer? The question, why are your garments red like one who treads on a wide press, wine press? The answer, because I have trodden the wine press of my enemies alone and their blood stained my garments. Now, as I read this this morning, again, I realized that alone should be earlier. Because I have trodden alone the wine press. It's not just his enemies alone. He is alone. And that would be brought out to us in two ways uh, that we'll deal with in just a moment. So the first thing we see right in verse 3 is he gives the direct answer. I have trodden the wine press alone. And from the people's no one was with me. Now remember Isaiah 59? This, this idea was there as well. I looked around and there was no one else. So I exercised salvation on my own. So he's trodden the wine press. Now the word for wine press in verse 2 and the word for wine press in verse 3 are different words. Wine press in verse 2 is the, the, the typical word for a wine press. A place for the grapes to be squashed, a wheel that goes around and squashes them and gets the juice out. But the other word that's used in verse 3 is for both the wine vat where the juice goes and the wine press. You see the totality that's being expressed here? It is the word that talks about the whole contraption, the wine press and the wine vat. I have trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples, no one was with me. So he's doing this on his own. There is no one else to do this work. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Again, parallelism. Remember, it can say the same thing in a different way. It can say something opposite in the second line. It can, say, it can intensify, and this is clearly an intensification. We move from anger to wrath and trod to trampled. And in the Hebrew, the trod to trample is even more clear. Trod is like walking on a road. Trample is total destruction. That's how that word is used. So this is, I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath to, real, to let us see that this is total destruction and it is the wrath of God being placed on his enemies. Why? Because he's one who speaks in righteousness. And if righteousness guides his character, evil, wickedness cannot. His wrath comes against that. But he gets even more descriptive, doesn't he? Their lifeblood, literally their juice. You see how the metaphor is carried forth? We're thinking about physical grapes, but we're talking about total destruction. Their lifeblood, their juice, spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Now that's a pretty direct answer, is it not? I'm coming from total judgment of my enemies. So this is a picture of what will happen on Christ's return. Now, 
There have been many, many MINI judgments throughout history. There have been times where the wrath of God has come and he has revealed himself against a nation or against a person. And it's been clear. There are times that the judgment of God sits upon a people or a nation, just like our nation right now. The judgment of God is currently sitting upon us as a nation. God is redeeming individuals from the nation, but the judgment sits on the nation. We know that from Romans 1, that all the things going on in our world are not, the, are not leading to our judgment. It is a cause. The judgment is the reason that they are upon us. So we see this throughout history, but there will come a day where it will be total. The, both the vat and the wine press. Everything that is an enemy of God will be destroyed. And we'll learn that it will be done outside the camp. Because in the New Jerusalem, there is no unrighteousness. It's only righteousness in the New Jerusalem. So those who are by the blood of the Lamb made righteous. So where do you stand? Is this vivid picture of destruction... Now, let me say one more thing before I even challenge you. No matter how vivid this picture is, can it represent reality? It cannot. The mind and eye of man cannot fully understand what this will look like on that day. But if we believe it will be true and we believe it will happen, it has an effect on us as well. So if you're, you're here today and this language scares you about yourself, not just motivates you to preach the gospel to more people so they're saved from their sin, but it's, it scares you about yourself. If you're seeing yourself in the picture under the, un, un, under the trotting wrath of God, then today is the day you need to turn from that sin because that sin is what's going to put you under his wrath. That sin is why Christ died and he holds the gospel out to you today. Will you repent of that sin? Remember, we just learned in previous chapters that the grace of God comes to those who repent. God will fulfill his covenant promises both to the wicked and to the righteous. And the righteous will be fulfilled in Christ. So where do you stand today? This is vivid language because this is the only question that matters. He is coming and are you ready? Look back at your text. He answers the question very clearly. Why is your apparel red? Because their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. But he doesn't just leave it there. We'll come back to that in verse 6. He restates it at the end. Verse 3 and verse 6 make bookends of this second answer. But he, he even unveils for us more of the why questions. Not just why is your apparel red, but why have you done that? See the four that begins verse 4? He's giving us the reason. For I desired vengeance and redemption, but there was no one to help. Look at verse 4. For... The day of my vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. So he did this, this judgment of sin, because it was in his heart. It was his will. Remember, heart, that, that's the place of will. It's the place of decisions. It's, it's, the, it's the place that we are engaging with things. And he says, this was my will. Now, if this is the will of God, will it happen? Yes. Absolutely. Now, this is both the threat to those who are enemies of God and comfort for those who are in Christ. Because it will happen. We don't have to have this vengeance on our own. Because when God does this, he's upholding justice. 
Remember, that's what we have said all through Isaiah. When vengeance, vengeance is righting the wrongs. It is exercising justice when there's unjust injustice. Righteousness when there's not righteousness around. And it is only God's. So when God does it, this is establishing justice again. When we do it, it's not righteous. How do I know that? Turn to Romans 12. We can go all the way back up to verse 9 with all of these commands that are really what would mark us if we're truly in Christ. And I want you to look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You ever been challenged by that? Do you ever want to repay evil with evil? Every time you think you want vengeance on someone, you're repaying evil with evil. And it says clearly, let's not do that. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now listen, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And that leave it is a very packed word. If you look at your footnotes in the ESV, it's literally give place for. Don't fill up your mind with vengeance towards someone else. Give place in your mind for God to do that. Because he will do that in his righteousness, in his time. He will take care of all that's going on in the world. He will take care of every wrong that has ever been done to you in his way, in his time. Now, let me, let me remind you of this. There can be someone who's caused you great pain right now who is already a believer or will become a believer. Now, if you exact vengeance upon them, you're double dipping in vengeance because the Lord died for their sin. And he is the one who suffered and died. We don't need to make people do that a second time. Now listen, I'm parked here a little bit because this is a challenge for us. You know, when, when you preach and teach for a living, do you know how often what you're preaching, Satan just holds up to your face and hammers, it with you, hammers you with it? Do you, do you know how many times I feel like the Holy Spirit leads me into the desert and says, contemplate this in your own heart because I'm failing then, and then I get this opportunity to, to either be a believer in what I preach or not? This is what happened to me this week. I'll just spare you all the details, and don't try to fill in the blanks. You won't be able to. But I, all this week, I'm frustrated about something, and I want to solve this. You know, and I want to solve it by revealing what they did and by, by just letting it be known what happened and how much I've endured from the. And I'm preaching this text. <laughs> and it took me a few hours to realize that. I'm preaching the text, and I'm holding on to these feelings as I prepare to preach the text. And it takes me a few hours to realize, knucklehead, this is you. <coughs> Do you ever have that problem? 
You ever have the problem where you know what the scripture says and your head says one thing and your heart says another and it's not even a dotted line? You've erased that line for a few hours. Vengeance is the Lord and it's his will. He will do it in his way. Now listen, his way could be the destruction of that enemy on that day or it could be placing the, his own wrath on his son so it's taken care of. Either way, we don't get in the way of that because this is his will. This is why this passage makes a difference for us as we live every single day. As we live, we know that no matter what we see and what we're experiencing, and, and I know that you and I can both experience a lot worse as this world goes crazier in our nation, right? We can experience a lot worse. Are we going to remember that vengeance is the Lord because he wills it? He promised it. Because then we speak and walk mighty in righteousness because it's his light shining through us. Because the righteousness, uh, the righteousness of God is not produced by the unrighteousness of man. Look back in Isaiah. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Why is it day and year? Well, I don't know. But I would think that the year of redemption is never ending. When we are redeemed, that redemption is never ending. Now, the vengeance is never ending either, but that vengeance separates you from God forever when he comes. You realize that, right? His patience is leading you to repentance today, but when he comes, there will be no more patience. But we, as believers, that, that year of jubilee, that goes on forever in his presence but look at verse 5 as well. I looked, but there was no one to help me. And we've already seen that in verse 50, chapter 59, verse 16. We've already seen that earlier in chapter three, or chapter 63, verse 3. He's emphasizing that he does this on his own. And now we get this by now, right? It's not the suffering servants. It's the suffering servant who dies in place of his people. This is the work that only the one who is perfectly righteous can do. That's why when he says he comes speaking in righteousness, we are assured that this is the one. This is the one whose death accomplishes what God says it will accomplish for us. And his second coming, when he comes again, will accomplish all of the vengeance that God intends to do. Because he is the one. There is no one else. He says, I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So... My own arm brought me salvation. So this is easily the picture of Yahweh and his arm, which throughout this section of scripture has been his representation of the Messiah, right? The coming one, the one who's predicted to come and accomplish this, both of them working together. My own arm, my own strength and my power brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. Now, I don't want you to turn back and forth to this, but I read you chapter 59, verse 17, 16, especially because there are so many similarities in these verses and the differences are stark for us. So in chapter 59, we, we, we have the words, he saw. This is talking about the same work in the third person. He saw, and what does, what does the, the coming one say here? I looked. Back in 59, there was no man here, but there was no help. There was no one to help. In 59, and I wonder that there was no one to intercede. Here, I was appalled that there was no one to uphold. In 59, verse 16, then his own arm brought salvation. Here, so my own arm brought me salvation. And then this change. 
in chapter 59, and his righteousness upheld him. And here in chapter 63, verse 5, and my wrath upheld me. This is showing us that God, his character is perfectly complete. He can work in wrath and still be loving. He can work in salvation and still be judging because his character is not divided into little passages. It's not like on the day of judgments he leaves all his compassion and his salvation back at home that day. He's functioning perfectly in his holiness as God. And so is his son doing the same. So it's his righteousness upholding him and it's his wrath upholding him to finish the work that's before him to redeem his people and to fully and finally judge his enemies. But he also gives a further description. He answers, and then he says the reason. He desired vengeance and redemption, but there was no one to help. But he also says, so I brought salvation myself. Look at 5C. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. This is all a work of God. This is why we talk so much about salvation being all a work of God and not of us. God plans it from the beginning, carries it out in his son, and does it all in his own power. And you and I can't thwart that. We can't mess it up, and we can't thwart what he's doing. The kingdom will advance according to his will, because this is what he desires to do. Well, he returns to his opening thought in verse 3. He returns in verse 6 to the same language. Look there. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Different wording, same principles. And I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 14. <coughs> Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, we're going to begin in verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now that's that language of Daniel 7 referring to Jesus himself. And another angel came out of the temple, calling for a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then, an angel, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, I'm not going to take the time to unpack all this imagery and this apocalyptic vision, but it's, you see the same language, and you see both events happening brought in this vision. The, the one who sits on the throne reaping all of his people because the harvest is ready and sending out his, in this vision, the angels 
to absolutely destroy all of the enemies that were not harvested because Christ knows his own. One more place. Turn over a couple of chapters to chapter 19. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flames of fire, flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in the linen, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." As horrible as these visions are, they will not represent the reality when the righteousness of God overwhelms the unrighteousness of the world fully and finally. Now that is clearly Jesus himself in Revelation, and how does it get there? How, how are we certain? Well, we've already learned all of this, haven't we? Isaiah 53 tells us that he poured out his soul for many. He died in the place of his people. The same language that's used in Isaiah 63 in the last phrase, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant poured out his soul to death. This is the suffering servant's work come to full fruition. And for us, it strengthens us in this life because we know that this event, as horrid as it sounds, will be righteous. It will be right. And we will rejoice, not because of what has happened, but because our God reigns. And because he will accomplish everything that he set out to accomplish. His long suffering is delaying that day, and we are grateful for that, which is why the gospel should be on our lips. Just constantly, this vision driving us to say, there are people in this world that are caught up in all of this falsehood, all of these lies, and the gospel is their only hope. And God is the one who saves them, but he has chosen to save them as we preach. And if they're not intended for that day, they need the gospel. 
what if God would use me today to preach the gospel to them? Now, in the midst of that, we have to walk into that world, don't we? That world that makes us want to just pull the blinds and shut off all the lights and hide from everybody. And God says, let your light shine because it's not yours. It is his in and through us. This day will come because he wills it. And remember what we learned at the very beginning. He is mighty and powerful to save. So this passage isn't talking about it, but his garments on the cross, if he had any on the cross, his blood was shed and stained the ground for his people because he dies in your place so that you would have life. The way to receive that? Repent, as Isaiah has told us over and over and over. So the call to you today is to come to Christ, to repent of your sins and trust in him so that your salvation is sure in his finished work. And if we're already in Christ, the call is, let this truth affect us and motivate us to joyful proclamation and to not shut ourselves out of a dying world, but to run headlong in it, into it and see what God does with his gospel. See what God does with our lives as we trust him with our lives and we trust what we know about him in the word. That is the only way to live and it is the only way for us to go up in this world and as we're about to sing, say with conviction, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth to us, your grace to us, for the power of your word. Thank you that you use your word and the preaching of men to feed and to strengthen your people and to call those who are lost to be saved. And we know that we can only live this way because you have honored your promises. That every promise that you made in the Old Testament is true and yes and amen in Jesus. And of all those we can see, we pray, Father, that you would, that you would strengthen us with the reality that he has already come that he has already done his saving work on the cross and he is already ruling and reigning. But those that are just in a vision for us still, Father, help that to be concrete, driving us to hope that we know that he's coming again and we know that for those of us who are in Christ, he brings us into our home where sin is outside the gate and the judgment of all your enemies will be outside the gate so as not to pollute that new eternal resting place for your people. I pray, Father, that would motivate us today, not just to a head knowledge of a better understanding of Isaiah, but a heart knowledge of a better understanding of what you have done through Christ on our behalf and our desire to be obedient. So make it so in us that we might live and preach in such a way that everyone knows that whatever happens, it is well with our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.